I'm excited about the Word of God. I don't know about y'all, but I love the Word of God. In fact, my wife and I, we uh, made it our goal at the beginning of this year to read through the Bible in 60 days. And uh, so we started on January 1st, and we just finished this last week, reading from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And, and uh, then I think when you read it that fast, you miss a lot. But also, whenever you read it that fast, you see a lot that you don't see whenever you're just pulling apart just a, a small portion of the Bible. So I want to encourage you to, to vary up the pace at which you read the Bible, challenge yourself in ways. Uh, I, I'm the kind of person I love to look at one or two verses of Scripture and really pick them apart, and I will chew on those for weeks at a time. Uh, but I've really enjoyed kind of stretching myself and, and trying to do something a little bit different. It's really opened my understanding to a lot of different uh, aspects of the Word of God. So, But talking about the Word of God, that's what we're going to talk about today. The title of the message is Author of Authority. Author of Authority. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Matthew chapter 7. You can go ahead and Turn your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, depending on how you read that. We're going to start towards the end in verse 24. Have you ever been speaking with someone and maybe they said something to you and just for clarification purposes, you you kind of repeated back what you heard and the person got a little bit testy with you? Like, like you should have understood the first time, right? What's one thing a lot of people say? They'll say, read my lips. They'll take time to emphasize, read my lips. In other words, what they're saying is, I want you to do more than just hear what I'm saying. I want you to experience what I'm saying. I want you to see it. I want you to understand it. Read my lips. And I believe that that's what God could be saying to us this morning as we look into his word. Don't just hear his word, but experience his word this morning. Read my lips. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Jesus is speaking, and he says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But, in other words, in contrast, anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Turn to someone you're sitting beside and say, you're amazing. You're amazing. They were amazed at his teaching. Why were they amazed? Verse 29 says, for he taught with real authority quite unlike the teachers of religious law. And this word authority comes from the Greek word meaning out of the original stuff. When Jesus taught, he wasn't just speaking like any other Pharisee or or Sadducee or any other religious leader. 
when Jesus spoke, people's hearts were changed. People's lives were altered. They, I mean, when Jesus spoke, people came to listen. We've got a lot of empty churches these days. And I believe one of the reasons is because whenever pastors preach, they're not preaching with an authority. Now, whenever we preach, whenever we share the word of God, we should share it as Jesus shared it. We should share it with some authority. Because whenever people heard the words of Jesus in the Gospels, they were attracted to him. We, we read of, of, of groups of thousands of people that would come to hear Jesus speak. We hear of, of uh, some friends that had to lower their uh, paralyzed friend through someone's roof at Jesus' feet because the crowds were so dense inside the house and around the house that they couldn't get in any other way. They had to dig a hole through the roof and lower their friend down to Jesus. People wanted to hear Jesus speak. They wanted to hear what he had to say, and they were amazed by what he had to say because he wasn't just speaking just nonsense and babbling on. His words pierced their hearts. His words made an impact in their lives. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Point number one, his word is better. His word is better. The truth is, there are a lot of words out there. There are a lot of people, a lot of religious ideas, a lot of philosophies, a lot of political stances. There's a lot of words out there. You can choose to listen to them, but let me tell you, there is a better word. There is a better word. Jesus, as he's teaching he says, though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. It is built on a better word. Look at your neighbor and say, it's better. Psalm chapter 107, verse 19 says, Lord, help! They cried out in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, snatching them from the door of death. That's a better word. Church, that is a better word. I want to help you out this morning. I want to I tell you a little secret. As a believer, this has the potential to change your life. Okay, so everybody pay attention. I'm going to tell you, Satan's number one strategy to defeat the believer. His number one strategy, his most frequently used strategy, is lying. It's lying. Satan is a liar. Now, we, I mean, we, we read about it uh, in the scripture. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 8, Verse 44, he, he's talking to some religious leaders. He's got, a little, he's got some harsh words for them right here. Uh, in John 8, verse 44, he says, For you are the children of your father, the devil. <laughs> that, that's pretty strong. He's saying, you're sons of Satan. <laughs> and you love to do the evil things he does. Regardless of who Jesus is talking to, listen to what he claims about Satan. He says this, He was a murderer from the beginning, he has always hated the truth, 
because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You could also say the author of lies. So we look at this right here, the word of God. Can I tell you something? This is a better word than any other word you could ever hear. And Satan, he's going to try and tell you or teach you or convince you of another word. But let me tell you, there is no better word than the words of God that you are holding in your hand right now. That is the greatest word. And Satan knows it. So what does he try to do? He tries to counterfeit it. He tries to speak a different word. You know, one of the fastest ways, historians agree, one of the fastest ways to destroy an economy is to counterfeit its money. An economy is best destroyed from within. Now, we see our economy is, is, is shaken and rattled by events that are happening in the world all around us. And in Russia and Ukraine, we, we see that there's repercussions for activities that are happening on the other side of the world. But the best way to destroy an economy is from within. And they say the best way is to counterfeit money. Because here's the thing, if, if I have three $100 bills and I, I go to the store to, to buy uh, groceries, because it takes that much these days to go buy groceries for a small family, and I've handed them three $100 bills, and they, you know, you know what they do? They pull out that little marker, little yellow marker, they ride across it. They ride across all three of those and say, hey, only one of these is real. Uh, we, have, we got a couple questions <laughs> we want to ask you. And then come to find out that there's a dozen, two dozen people in the community that have found themselves trying to pay with, for something with counterfeit bills. And then all of a sudden they, they notice it's, it's happening in a certain state and, and it's just spreading and spreading. All of a sudden people are panicking. I don't know if my money's real. It's, it's hard to tell these days if money is real. They make it so intricate and, and hard to duplicate. They do that for, for a reason. Because if any Joe Schmo could get on his, on his computer and, and print out $100 bills, uh, then we would know that we're living in a place with fake currency. That currency holds no value. Let me tell you, that's Satan's number one strategy. If he wants to try to make people look at the word of God with skepticism, he's going to put another word out there. If he's going to want to make you second guess what you're reading, what is he going to do? He's going to inundate our lives with different words. It's not hard. You can drive from here to downtown Atlanta and probably see 40 different churches of probably more than a dozen different denominations because we Christians can't even agree <laughs> on the word of God. There's so many words out there. There's so many interpretations out there. And how many of us are living our lives hoping that we've got the right word, hoping that we're basing our lives on the better word? Satan knows that his time is short, so what is he going to do? 
He's going to try to make you question the word of God. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, I want to read uh, six verses of scripture from Genesis chapter 3. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Did he really say that? Hey, hey, Eve, did God really say? Why did he go to Eve? It's because God didn't tell Eve. Who did he tell? He told Adam. And so he goes to Eve and is like, hey, you didn't really hear God say that. You're going off of what Adam said, right? Adam said that God said. You see, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any of the trees? And Eve says, well, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. Verse 3. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So obviously, Adam told Eve what God had said about the tree in the middle of the garden. Look at what Satan says, verse 4. You won't die. What? God said that you would die? Are you, are you kidding me? He said that? Verse 5. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And then it says, and the woman was convinced. She was convinced. She knew the word of God. And by the way, a lot of people, you know, a lot of men would say, of course, leave it up to a woman to ruin everything, right? Well, the Bible says that Adam was right there with her. So he's there with this conversation going on. He's not an innocent party to what happened either. They're both there. They both know the word of God. They both know what God said, and they're both convinced of another word, of a different word. Notice what Satan said. He said, if you eat it, you will be like God. Spoiler alert. They were already like God. The Bible says that God made humankind in his image and in his, help me out, in his likeness. They were already like God. They were created in his likeness. And Satan comes in and he, all he does is he takes God's word and he just kind of tweaks it just a little Right there. There's a word that, that we use in, in culture today that's kind of taken on a little bit of meaning, but it's perversion or perverted. That's what Satan does. Everything that God creates, Satan attempts to pervert. That word pervert means to change just a little bit so that people might think there's a different meaning to what's been said. He takes God's words and he just perverts it just a little bit, just so that we'll think that it means something else. And we can see that God gives love and Satan takes that concept of love and he perverts it and creates lust. God gives this idea of marriage, Marriage between one man and one woman, and, and Satan comes and takes this idea of marriage and just tweaks it just a little bit and makes it something that it's not. 
We see it with God giving us grace, and Satan perverts that grace as an excuse to sin. Well, if you sin, God will forgive you. He's a gracious God, so just go out and sin all you want. He takes the word and he perverts it. God gives joy, and, and Satan gives a different definition of that word joy, and he says, oh, whatever makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. You're only going to live for just a short amount of time. Just do whatever will make you happy. So we see that, that anything God creates that's beneficial and beautiful, Satan comes and he takes it and he just kind of tweaks it a little bit. He'll even use some of the same words, and we see it with Jesus in the wilderness whenever Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And Satan starts quoting Scripture to Jesus, but what he's done is he's perverted the intent and the meaning behind that Scripture. Of course, Jesus, he is the Word of God. I don't think you're going to trip the Word of God up if you're talking to the Word of God. And so Jesus puts him in his place. But let me show you. I want to give you a little analogy, hopefully to help us understand. So this right here is, is, is what I would illustrate as, as being... Satan's word. Satan will come and say, hey, I got something big for you. You want to know what it is? You want to know what's inside the box? Hey, listen, I, I want you to understand what's inside of this box. It's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. It's the, the most wonderful thing that could ever happen in your life right here inside of this box. But I need you to believe me, all right? I need you to believe me. The, the greatest thing that could ever happen is right here inside of this box. And so what he does is he presents this big idea. He gives us this, this big thought or this big picture of something grand, something better. And God says, I've got something for you too. got something for you too. And it's so much better than anything he could give you. And Satan is like, hey, listen, listen. God brought a box, but I brought a bigger box. <laughs> this box is better. It's made out of thicker cardboard. It's, it's got color to it. It's, it's beautiful. It's a great box. You should buy it. Uh, you, should, you should want it. But here's the problem with Satan. Whenever he promises something, what he tends to do is he tends to overpromise and underdeliver. Woo! <laughs> and you're like, that's not that impressive. That's not what I hoped it would be. This is, you know, I, I, I put my life into this. I staked my reputation on this. I, I sunk some money into this, and, and it's not quite what I thought it was going to be. See, the problem is Satan, he will talk a big talk. He will throw out a big word, but the fulfillment of it is usually pretty shallow. God says, hey, if you come to me, I will give you joy unspeakable. And Satan says, I got joy too. Whatever makes yourself happy, do it. Here's the thing. Have you ever seen someone who is so incredibly selfish that they get under your skin? Have you ever met anybody, have you ever seen anybody like that? They're just so incredibly selfish. You're just like, my goodness, who died and made you king? Like, why, why do you think you're so good, you know? 
Have you ever noticed that the most selfish people tend to be the most miserable people? All that they look for in life is just to make themselves happy. But at the end of the day, they're miserable. They're discontented. But God says this. He says, I have a better word. And maybe on the outside it doesn't look as flashy. Maybe on the outside the, the appearance doesn't seem as, as grand as whatever Satan's concocting with his words over there. But listen, I have a better word. I have a better word. So what happens is look into God's word. And his word is better. And it's better bigger, and it's stronger, a whole lot more so than the enemies. There's actually substance to it, and it is actually really intriguing, and it's a whole lot more fulfilling. You see, God will promise us something, and Satan will try to copycat it and make it look better, but in the end... Satan's word isn't holding up to God's word. In the end, Satan's word isn't as big as God's word. In the end, the the word of the enemy is not as substantial as the word of God. Someone say amen. Come on. It's a better word. It's a better word. Amen. If y'all were here last week, you remember we talked about Jesus calming the storm. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. His disciples are freaking out because a massive storm comes up. The Bible tells us there's a windstorm with, with high waves that were breaking over into the boat. And they go and they're, they're, they're terrified and, and they wake Jesus up. And what does Jesus do? Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. And what does he say? He says, silence, be still. Silence. Now, I don't know about you. If I'm in a boat, water's coming into the boat, I'm not really worried about how loud it is. I'm worried about whether or not I have the enough, enough endurance to swim myself the rest of the way. I'm wondering whether or not there's going to be a piece of the boat left over that's big enough that I can hold on to it and it's going to float. I'm not worried about the the noise. And Jesus says, silence, be still. And then he turns to his disciples and says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Where is your faith? What does he mean by that? Jesus says, "Why, why are you afraid? Give me one good reason why you're afraid. Where is your faith? I think what he's referring to is, Whenever Jesus got in the boat, he told his disciples, let's go to the other side. The word had been spoken. We are going to the other side. And now the disciples, they find themselves in the middle of the lake, and and the wind and the waves are crashing into the boat and breaking the boat, and they're terrified. Jesus, don't you care that we're going to drown? And Jesus is like, you've listened to another word, haven't you? You've listened to another voice, haven't you? 
And although this wasn't a physical voice, I, I love that Jesus, he commands it to be silent. And that this word that he uses to rebuke the wind and the waves whenever he says silence is the same word that he uses whenever he spoke to demonic spirits that would manifest themselves inside of people. He would tell them, be quiet, silence. It's the same Greek word. So I love when Jesus rebukes the storm. He's, he's rebuking it like he would a devil, like a demon. He says, would you shut up? You got my disciples over here worried half to death, probably three quarters to death. Would you be quiet? You're not the strongest word here. The word is in this boat, and the word is better. The word that's in this boat is better than any word out there. Jesus talking about the wise man and the foolish man who built their houses. He says the wise man will build his house on the better word. And this word is so much better that whenever the rain comes, and the floods come up, and the winds beat against the house, it will not fall. Now, I think it's interesting when Jesus is talking about this, he, he, he says rain, floods, and wind. He, he uses the analogy of a storm. And I believe that there's a reason for that. It's because throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible often describes Satan's words as being a flood, as being a flood. In fact, in uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 15, it's a very symbolic, uh, Jesus is, is poetically speaking uh, some pretty incredible things. He says, then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. Again, this is symbolically speaking. There wasn't a, a real flying dragon that was gushing out water out of its mouth trying to drown a woman. This is, <laughs> this is actually Jesus referring back to King Herod whenever Jesus was being born. King Herod tried to drown the woman and kill the baby. And what did he do when the wise men came? He said, go and find where he is and come back and tell me so that I too may go and worship him. Let me, let's take a poll. How many of y'all think Herod wanted to go worship Jesus? No, no. <laughs> What was he doing? He was lying. And, and Jesus, he's talking about this to John on the Isle of Patmos in, in Revelation 12. And he, he says, the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. What comes from your mouth? Hopefully just words. Words. Listen, the enemy wants to drown out your life with the lies that he speaks. But I want you to remember that we have a better word. Jesus said, though the rains come down and the floods come up, and though the winds beat against that house, it will stand. Why did he use that analogy? Again, he's referring, I believe, he's referring to the lies of our enemy. He will spit lies at you from above, those in authority above you, your boss that's hard to get along with, maybe a parent. He'll also spit lies at you from beneath. How many of you have been lied to by your children before? 
How many of you have been, been lied to by, by people that, that are underneath you in authority? And he said, the winds will come and beat against the house. I don't know if you've ever been outside whenever it's raining and there's high winds. The rain doesn't go so much like this. It goes more like this. <laughs> He's saying this. It doesn't matter what our enemy says. It doesn't matter what lies come your way or from which direction his lies come from. If you build your house on the better word, you will not fall. Come on, church. His word is better. Here's point number two. His word is stronger. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus said, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise like a person who builds his house on solid rock. Solid rock. And then it goes on to say in verse 28, When Jesus had finished saying these things and telling the story, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority. Now this word amazed comes from a Greek word, Ekpleso. Ekpleso. It's actually a combination of words. Ek, meaning the place from which movement is initiated or begins. And the word pleso, which means to pound, to smite, or to strike. So this word ekpleso says the people were amazed. Matthew gives us this idea. He chooses this Greek word ekpleso to, to tell us how the people were feeling. They were struck with astonishment at his words. And I love it because, you know, Jesus, we, I call him Google Jesus. This, this sweet little idea that if you just Google the name Jesus, it just comes up with this sweet little caricature of a, of a skinny, frail, white Jesus. By the way, Jesus wasn't even white, but that's what you'll see. And most of the time, he's got a halo around his head and a real somber look on his face, and he's like this. I don't know if you've ever seen any Jesus movies, but they, they portray him as, as being someone who's just so... Holy, it's like he floats when he walks. There's like no, you know, bounce in his step. He just, just beautiful and, and peaceful. Matthew says that the people that were there and heard his words, it felt a little bit like Jesus was going, <laughs> just pop to strike with astonishment. Like, the, whoa, oh my goodness, I did not expect him to say that. Wow. And it says the reason they were so astonished and so amazed and were, were just awestruck was because he spoke with real authority. Real authority. In other words, when Jesus spoke, people couldn't help but be moved from where they were. They came in standing right here, and when Jesus spoke, it was just like they were just pushed into a new place. They were pushed out of where they were. And church, my prayer 
is that each time one of us comes in this place and hears the Word of God, or each time you're at home and you pick up and open the Word of God, or each time you're with someone and and you begin to discuss the Word of God, my prayer is that we as God's people would be moved past where we started, and we would be moved into something new. Because we have a better word and a stronger word, and this word should move you. Can I step on your toes for a minute, church? If you read the Bible and get nothing out of it, it's only your fault. Because this word is authority. And if you choose to take this word and live it out in your life, you are not going to be able to help but move from place to place to place and from glory to glory to glory and deeper and deeper and deeper in your relationship with him because this word is alive. Some will say it's alive. Our God is the author of authority. We're talking about authority. In week one, we talked about how we should understand authority, we should believe authority, and how we should submit to authority. And then last week, we talked about how the authority of God will bring peace in our lives. If we will submit to God's authority, if we'll uh, understand it, believe it, and submit to it, we will experience the unprecedented peace that comes from Jesus Christ. Because we can be in a place that we're in a storm like the disciples in a boat. We can be in that place, and instead of getting a bucket and trying to pail water overboard, we can just say, you know what, I'm going to sit down and take a nap with Jesus. That's how much peace he brings, because that's how much authority he has. And if we would choose to understand and believe and to submit to this authority, there is nothing that the enemy can do or say that can take you from the hands and the the blessings and the power of God. Absolutely nothing. Because his word is better and his word is stronger. I want to read this verse of scripture in Psalm chapter 107 again. Verse 19. It says, Lord, help, they cried in their trouble. And he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them snatching them from the door of death. How many of y'all have heard this phrase? There are only two things that are certain. Someone say it out. Say say it with some authority. Come on. Death and taxes. There's only two things in this world that are certain. Death and taxes. Right? It's this funny saying. I, think, I don't think we mean it so much as, as a, as a uh, you know, us, us being aggravated at, at the idea of death, but I think we say it because we're so aggravated at the idea of taxes, right? Like we, some of y'all who are working on preparing your taxes right now, it's tax season. Some of you are like, amen, like this is, this is awful. This, this is insane, right? But listen, the, the saying is, is, is comical, But listen, not even death is certain whenever you live are living in the authority of God. Not even death. Ask Elijah. Not even death is certain. Come on. Ask the person that was thrown on the bones of Elijah. He was dead. They went to bury him. Some raiders were coming, so they opened the tomb where Elisha was buried, and they threw, his bo- they threw his dead body on the bones of Elisha, and the man jumped up back to life. 
Not even death is certain. Whenever a funeral procession is, is going down the street and, and Jesus happens to be passing by and he sees the, the dead man's mother whose husband had also died previously, and he has so much compassion on her, he goes up and he touches the coffin of the dead man, and the dead man starts, Someone let me out! Not even death is certain. Listen, he sent out the word and healed them, snatching them from the door of death. We're talking about a stronger word. And here's my last point, point number three. His word is enduring. His word is enduring. I actually want to share with you a little bit about what we've been learning in our young adults Bible study Sunday nights about the word of God. Because here's the question. You read in the Bible. We've heard pastors and preachers and Sunday school teachers and Bible scholars say that this is God's words. This is the word of God. But how many of you have ever had that question in the back of your mind that's, that says, is it really? Or am, am I sure? Because I'm reading mine in an English translation. How sure am I that these words are the words that the original authors wrote? And even beyond that, the original authors who wrote these words, if it is word for word correct, how sure are we that what they wrote was what actually happened? And if we can get past both of those tests, then can we be sure that what is written here is actually inspired by God? Now let me tell you, those are some big tests to live up to. And if, we're, if, if you're being honest with yourself, then you would say, these, these questions are important to me too. I don't want to just read something blindly and not know if it's true or not. Paul even exhorted his readers. He said, don't just listen to me, but look into the word of God for yourself and see if what I'm preaching is what is spoken about in the word of God. So if we're going to look at the word of God, we need to look at it as, hey, I, I need to know, is this God's word? is what is written in my Bible, my English translation, what was actually written long ago by the authors, and were they inspired of God, and did they actually and accurately detail real-life events that took place? So I want to talk about that for just a moment because I'm a little bit of a, a Bible nerd. I love all things the Bible, and so Whenever we look at this, the question is what we have, what they wrote. That's called the, the question of transmission. Transmission. Have you ever played the telephone game? And, uh, you, you know, you, you got a line of, of people. You probably played it in elementary school. You got a line of people, and you whisper a phrase into someone's ear, and they turn to the person beside them, and, and they whisper that phrase into the person's ear. And the person beside them, they didn't hear the first three words, but they heard the last part of it, so they whisper what they heard about the last part of that. And then the next person, they whisper it a little bit, but they heard one word incorrectly. And by the time you get from here to there, and the last person says what the phrase is, everybody busts out out in laughter because it's nowhere close to what was actually said. 
And a lot of people will believe, in fact, a lot of skeptics will say that this will be their number one claim, is that there's no way that what we have in our Bibles today is actually what was written because we don't have the original copies. What Paul wrote to the, the church in Corinth, we don't have his original letter. What Peter wrote to the believers in First and Second Peter, we don't have his original letter. So how can we know that what we're reading is accurate? How many of you in here would say, that's a good question? Like, well, let's be honest. That, that's a good question. How would we know that? Well, they call it the test of transmission. And here's the thing. Skeptics would be right in saying that we don't have the original copies. No one is coming up and saying, oh, hey, by the way, I've got Paul's original letter to, to the church in Rome. <laughs> I got it right here. No one's claiming that. You can look all over the internet. You're not going to find Paul's original letter to Rome. Why? Because what happened during this time, when Paul was writing a letter to Rome, he, he was, he's correcting them on things, he's encouraging them on things, and he's writing a letter to a specific group of people. And so he, I, I can imagine, I don't know, maybe he knew, but I can imagine he probably didn't know that he was writing what we'd be reading in our Bibles today. He was probably just writing a letter to a church that he helped start to give them some good spiritual fatherly advice. And so he sends them this letter. Well, what happens? The church takes it. And if they're wise, they look at it and say, oh, hey, Paul is, is correcting us on this issue right here. We need to do better at this. And Paul is encouraging us about this right here. He's saying that we're, we're being good givers. So, hey, let's increase our giving. Let's give more this month. Let's give more this year. Let's make a goal to give more this year. And, and this is what Paul says. And, and what would happen is they would read it. The congregation would come together in Rome, and the, the, the Christian leader, the pastor, he would read the letter to the church. But what would happen after that is he would give that letter to someone else, another family. That family would go home, they would study it, they would learn from it, they would apply it to their lives. But they knew they couldn't hold on to it for long because there's other people in the church that need it. So what did they do? Instead of just giving it away and trying to remember, they would write it down. They would copy it. They would handwrite, hand copy it. And then they would pass the original on to the next family who would study from it, learn from it, hand copy it, pass it on to the next family who would study it, learn from it, hand copy it, pass it on to the next family. And what we see is that it's passing throughout this church in Rome from family to family, and each family is copying it, writing it down, hand copying it. But even beyond that, it starts being passed down from generation to generation. And now the copies are being passed down from generation to generation. And they're still learning from it. They're still feeding from it. They're still copying it. Did you know that there are over 23,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that have been found today? 23,000 copies. And a lot of people, a lot of skeptics will say, well, it's kind of like the telephone game. But here's the thing. Whenever you have so many copies, you're able to take this copy from that family and that copy from this family and put them side by side and study them and see, oh, okay, uh, this one said a little bit different right here. Let's pull in a third copy. Okay, oh, okay, right. And they're able to triangulate and see what the original one said. So even if someone made a mistake, they would still be able to see. Did you know that between these 23,000 plus copies that have been found, 
Bible scholars have found almost 400,000 differences. And a lot of people say, oh, okay, that's it. I'm not, believe, I'm not trusting that what I'm reading here is accurate. Almost 400,000 differences? That's what a skeptic will say, but they're not telling the whole truth. Because Bible scholars say that 99.5%, 99.5% of those differences are misspellings or incorrect grammar, or maybe they had two words right here and they switched the two words around. They call them insignificant discrepancies. Insignificant differences. 99.5% of these 23,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, 99.5% of the differences are just because someone wasn't literate enough to write it. But once you take one copy from here and this one from there and that one from there and you put them together, you're able to see the fuller picture. Because whereas Brother Billy might have misspelled a word over here, well, Miss Rhonda spelled it correctly in hers and Miss Gina spelled it correctly in hers and Brother Rick spelled it correctly in his. And whereas Brother Mike over here, he might have accidentally spelled a word uh, he, instead of saying, uh, you know, boil, he might have said broil, you know, it's two different ideas, you know, it's close to the same word. There's just one extra letter, but one is boiling water on a stove and one is broiling something, cooking it at a high rate in an oven. So you're able to take all these different manuscripts and put them side by side and say, okay, well, no, all of these right here say boil. This is the only one that says broil. So we know the original must have said boil. We can conclude without any reasonable doubt what the original says. 23,000 handwritten New Testament manuscripts. That's over 2 million pages. If you were to stack them up on top of each other, it would be a mile high. In fact, I want to show you a picture of uh, one particular piece of manuscript called uh, P52. If Maya can find that one, or Taya can find that one in there. P52 stands for Papyrus 52. It's actually uh, a portion of John chapter 18 verse 31 through 33 on one side, and the other side of this uh, piece of parchment or papyrus is John chapter 18, verse 37 through 38. Uh, go to the one above that. It should be above that. Keep going, keep going. I think it's underneath point number two, Taya. It's called Papyrus 52. And they found this piece right here, and uh, they're able to, to read the portions of it, seven lines of Scripture from John uh, chapter 18. And they've dated this piece of papyrus back to around 25 years from the time John wrote it. Around 25 years. That's pretty close. You might say 25 years is a long time, right? But if we look at other... Um, other pieces uh, or other documents that are out there from, from things that we teach in school, like if we're teaching Roman history in school and you hear about all the Caesars and, and world domination and all this kind of stuff, uh, these, these uh, manuscripts that we get all of this Roman information from is mainly from three different writers. Uh, one is named Livy, one is Tacitus, and one is Suetonius. 
And Livy has 153, or 150 copies of his writings of Roman history. And the earliest copy is 400 years after the original. We don't have his original. We just have his copy. Probably his copy of his copy of his copy of his copy. And it's 400 years after the original. We look at Tacitus. He had 33 copies of Roman history that he wrote. And the earliest copy we have of his is around 800 years after he wrote it. 800 years. In other words, sometime down the road, 800 years later, someone was, was writing a copy of Tacitus's writing. That's the earliest one that we have of his. And Suetonius has 200 copies. We have 200 copies of Suetonius's work. And the earliest copy, again, is around 800 years after the original. But we teach our Roman history in school like it's fact. Like, hey, this is what happened in ancient Rome. In first century Rome, this is what was going down. But a lot of people will be skeptical about the words of God, but we're not some 400 or 800 years after where we have our copies. A lot of our copies, in fact, 124 of our copies are within the first 300 years of when they were originally written. 124. We don't have any from Roman history that are anywhere close. The closest one is 400 years later. And so we can reasonably assume that what we're reading in the Word of God is what was actually written. What was actually written. Here's the thing, though. There's, I don't know, maybe you've been reading through your Bible and you come across a certain portion of Scripture, and right above it, it would say something like, some of the earliest manuscripts don't include this portion. Of scripture. I don't know if you've ever come across that and read it in your Bible. Uh, I'll tell you the three of them. Mark chapter 16, verse 9 through 20. John chapter 7, verse 53 through John chapter 8, verse 13. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. There's three portions of our scripture where scholars are like, we're not sure if this was part of the original. It might have been added later. So we're going to put a footnote there just so you know. Three small portions of scripture. The rest of the entire New Testament, they're like, oh, no, we're solid on this. We know that this is what the original copy said because we're able to look at over 2 million pages of text. I told you I'm going to nerd out on you. I'm sorry if all these, y'all, y'all, some of y'all are probably sitting there like, oh, my goodness, when is this dude going to end? In fact, if the worship team would come on up, that'd be great. Here's the next question. Are the things that the authors wrote in the Bible what actually happened? Are they what actually happened? What we're able to do is we're able to do two different tests, internal tests and external tests, to see if what the authors wrote is what actually happened. Think about it like this. One of the tests is called the the test or the principle of embarrassment. Here's the thing, if you're you're wanting to write a make-believe story so that people will believe it, you're going to try to, number one, you're going to try to be as general as you can. You're not going to give specifics. And number two, you're not going to want to write anything that could be embarrassing to your story, right? You want people to believe it. You want to sound confident. 
But we look in the Gospels and we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whenever they give us uh, the story of Jesus being resurrected from the grave, who was the first one that they say found, went to the grave? Anybody know? Mary. Mary Magdalene. Now here's the thing. To us today, that's not a big deal. But in first century Jewish culture, women were considered second-class citizens. A woman could not testify or witness in court because people believed, this is real, people believed in first century Israel that women were inherently liars. (laughs) This is what they believed. They wouldn't let them witness in court because they're like, this woman can't tell the truth. She's full of the devil, right? So why would you include this in your story? That, hey, Jesus rose from the grave, and by the way, the first people that witnessed an empty grave was a few women. People would look at the, these disciples or, or these uh, gospel writers, and they would say, why should we believe you? They're, they're all liars. I'm not going to believe what you're saying. We call it the, the principle of embarrassment. It's an internal test. We're able to look in the Bible and see there are embarrassing facts, but I believe that the writers were more concerned with telling what was true than creating a narrative to help others want to believe. They spoke what was true. We see the story of Peter in the book of Mark where he denied Jesus three times. People come in, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? No, I've never met the man. I don't know who he is. Time after time after time. Three times. Mark writes about this. It's believed that Mark wrote his gospel according to Peter's perspective. In other words, Peter probably came to Mark and said, hey, I want you to write some stuff down. I've got some stuff I want to tell you. I want you to write it down. And so Mark writes down that Peter denied Jesus three times. And Peter is the one that Jesus was looking at when he said, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Mark is like, oh, hey, by the way, that rock that Jesus was talking about, he denied Jesus. (laughs) Interesting fact. (laughs) Again, in first century Israel, if you were trying to create a story for people to believe, you wouldn't throw your number one leader under the bus. You wouldn't throw the leader of the church under the bus and try to drag his name through the mud. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be allowed unless Peter was to say, hey, I want you to include this. It was a dark moment in my life, but it was also a life-altering moment. And I think people should know about it. It's called the test of embarrassment. But there's also external tests. Matthew chapter 26, verse 3. If you could put that up there for me, please, Taya. Matthew chapter 26, verse 3. It says, At the same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. Different gospel. It says, Annas and Caiaphas, Caiaphas were the high priests. They were the high priests at the time the message came from John, from God, came to John, son of Zechariah, who's living in the wilderness. John chapter 18, verse 13, says, First they took to him Annas, since he was the father-in-law of 
Caiaphas, the high priest at the time. And so we see three different writers are writing at three different times in three different locations. And each one, they don't have cell phones where they can communicate. Hey, are you talking about Caiaphas in your letter? No, okay. They're in three different places, three different people at three different times in history writing. And each one of these, what is that, in Matthew and in Luke and in John, they mention a man named Caiaphas and that he was a high priest at the time. Fun fact, Caiaphas was the leading role in the crucifixion of Jesus. And in 1990, December of 1990, can you put that, that first picture, the one that, that you threw up there? Not the papyrus, but the other one. I'm sorry, the other one. This one. This is an ossuary. This is uh, where in Jewish culture back then, they would take the bones of a person and they would put them in these ossuaries. And they'd put these ossuaries in a cave or tomb. And so it's like a casket, but just for bones. And this ossuary right here was discovered in December of 1990. For perspective, I was alive, just barely, but I was alive when they found this ossuary. And inscribed on the side of the ossuary are the words, Yehosef bar Kayada, which is translated as Joseph, son of Caiaphas. It's found in the same place where this high priest would have lived. And it mentions the name Caiaphas. And you could say, well, maybe there's different Caiaphases, right? But in 2011, another ossuary was discovered. And if you can put the, that second one up there. And right below this man's fingers is an inscription that goes all the way across the top of this ossuary. And the inscription says this, Miriam daughter of Yeshua, son of Caiaphas, priest of Maaziah from Beth Emory. So not only does it tell us that, that this woman died and her bones were buried in this box and her father was a guy named Joseph, or I'm sorry, uh, Yeshua, Joshua is what we would say in English, Joshua. But Joshua's father was Caiaphas, and Caiaphas was a high priest and he was a high priest in a certain location. And you're able to look all this up in the Bible. And we see, not only do we hear about this guy named Caiaphas, and he's a high priest, and this is dated to the first century, which is when he lived. Not only that, but it says that he was a part of the priesthood of Maaziah. Maaziah. And if you look in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, we actually hear about the priesthood of Maaziah. It was begun by King David. And so we can look at the word of God and, and place all these internal tests on it, the test of, of embarrassment, the test of coherence, or are they all telling the same story, the, the test of the authors, are, are they all in the same place at the same? No, they're all spread out, but they're all saying the same message. But we're also able to look at external tests. And even today, they're still finding more and more and more artifacts that corroborate with the Word of God. Just a few years ago, they found a coin, and on the coin, it's, it had the inscription or, or it said something about King David. And up until that time, they had never found any artifact about King David before, which is kind of amazing because he's the most popular king in Israel's history. But even today, they're still finding new things. 
And each time they find something, it points back to the Bible. And it shows us that not only are, is what we're reading what was actually written, not only is what we're reading what the authors wrote, but the events that they wrote about are true. And the people they mentioned were real people. And the things that these people did were real things and real occupations. It's incredible to me, church. I don't know about you. But listen, I'm sorry. I've nerded out long enough. This is what I want to say. His word is better. His word is stronger. And his word is enduring. Satan may promise one thing, but his promises are fleeting. The word of God will promise you something, but his promises are here to stay. Here to stay. So what do we make of all this? What should our response be? Listen, if we are looking at the words of God on paper and ink in front of our face, and if we believe them to be true, then you should be full of joy because you are reading the better word, the stronger word, the enduring word. If these are the words of God, can I, can I challenge you, encourage you? If these are the words of God, then you should probably be reading them because they're probably pretty important. Some pretty important words in here because we know it's come from God. It's divinely inspired of God. If this is true, if this is the word of God, then that should impact our families. That should impact the way I live my life and the things that I do and the places that I go and the things that I choose to say and the thoughts that I choose to ponder and, and think and dwell on. If these are the words of God, it should change your life. And when Jesus spoke, the people were moved. They were amazed. They were moved because our God is the author of authority. I want to leave you with this verse in James chapter 1. If you would, if you're able to stand to your feet this morning. James chapter 1, starting in verse 22. It's one of my most favorite small portions of the Bible. James, which is the half-brother of Jesus, by the way, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after Jesus' death. This was also recorded in the Bible. Why would you say that Jesus' own half-brother didn't even believe that he was the Son of God until later? But after Jesus' death, James becomes the leader of the church, and for good reason. He spent more time with Jesus than anybody. This is what he says. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Wow. That brings us back to Matthew chapter 7 with Jesus. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. 
Church, we can't just hear the word of God. You can't just pick up the words of God and read it. But you have to follow it. You have to do it. You have to put it to action in your life. And if this word is the real authority, it should be our desire to put it to action in our life. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for this moment that we've had to share together, to look into your word. And Lord, I pray that we, like the, the, the writers of the gospel, Lord, that, that we would be inspired to hold dear your words to our heart. God, help us to know you more. Help us to love you more. Help us to see you more and help us to follow you more diligently than we ever have in our lives. God, we are convinced and we thank you that you have given us undeniable proof that your word is alive and that it's active and that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And Lord, we pray that we would allow your word room in our hearts so that we can be changed so that we can go out and live what is written on these pages. Lord, we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name.